Welcome back. All right, so first question. Once probation closes, those sealed would be cared for. However, up until then, there's a lot of talk about prepping, particularly with talk of food crisis, etc., in the world. What are your thoughts on this? I think we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it, and we're supposed to occupy till Christ comes. And so I think uh, taking any wisdom to ensure that this is what we've done, retirement plans, Regardless of when the crisis is coming, people have retirement plans and RAs, and they uh, plan for the future as uh, time unfolds, but they're not living for a retirement. They're living for the second coming of Christ. Um, I know that uh, Ellen White writes that if you hoard a bunch of stuff up, like, like really hoard a bunch of stuff, rather than just a little wisdom, that it will be taken from you at the time of trouble. So don't do it. So that those with guns and might will come and take your stuff. If you, if you make a big cache of resources, okay, that's what she says. So she said you trust God with those things, and uh, so live with it wisely. How do, you, how do you interpret the symbols specifically for Daniel and Revelation? Are they referenced in other parts of the Bible, IEC equals people? What symbols I mean nations? Is there a source that has a list of meanings? So yes, uh, the first principle is the Bible interprets itself. But I would I just say, give us a couple of months. I've written a new document, um, the uh, Unmasking the Beasts of Revelation. It's already written and edited. It's with the layout designer, and we're he's just doing the layout for the publication. We're going to have a new magazine coming out and in there you will see these principles because every every section that i interpret something i will show you in reference in the bible where that is coming from so you have a great resource to answer this question and it's already written to be out in a few months uh, my, my question is largely mental health uh talks on uh my husband has a, a chronic pt or complex ptsd I uh, see that he has many, many struggles. Um, I tried to order some of your tracks materials online, but they were unavailable in Australia. Would you please consider making them available? I'm happy to pay postage, or could you release them digitally as a PDF? So they are available in Australia, and they're also available in South Africa. Uh, and uh, and so let me give you, it's uh, in our notes at the end of, if you go to our website, go to our notes. At the end of my notes, I always put a link, but I also think in our resource section or our, our store section, there are the links there for the um for how to contact for Australia and South Africa. But uh, in Australia, we have Could It Be This Simple, God has Love Children's Book, Heavenly Sanctuary for the Modern World, Final Message of Mercy, the Remembered New Testament, the Remembered Lord and Song, first set of tracks, all physically available in Australia. You can get that by emailing Simon at Australia at CommonReason.com. Australia at CommonReason.com. Email Simon. Tell him what you're interested in. And then many of our other resources are available right now for download on our website digitally. So glad you asked the question. What is your take on some that claim Paul is a false is false and contradicts Jesus' teaching? I struggle to understand because I can see both sides where both sides are coming from. If points could be made for both, him being true and false, then how do you know what to believe? So personally, I've never actually heard that. I've never heard arguments that anybody suggests Paul is a false prophet or a false apostle, so I, I don't really know the basis of that argument. But the other question is, how do you know? Because you've studied for yourself. You know the principles of God. You know the true gospel. And you've studied the scripture. You're able to recognize that uh, what Paul teaches is exactly what Jesus teaches because they teach the same principles pointing to the same God. So um, you know, that's how that's, it takes practice to, to, to do that. And we use, again, the integrative evidence-based approach, scripture harmonizing with science and real-world experiences. Friday evening in our Vesper meeting, the presenter said that the remnants ate a plant-based diet and the remnants of today uh, must do the same. Did Jesus eat meat? 
So I'm not sure what they're referring to, but my thought, because I've heard similar things, when they say remnants, I think they're talking about the remnant of Israel that was taken to Babylon, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it says they wouldn't eat the meats from the king. And this is, I've heard arguments used as examples of the uh, time of trouble approaching the end that the remnant of God will also give up meat eating. It's a terrible argument and a terrible application. First off, the only thing going on in Daniel with that remnant group is they were not going to give credit to the pagan gods by eating the pagan meats so that when they were intel- more intelligent, they couldn't argue it was because you're being blessed by the pagan gods. So they only ate the, the various grains and nuts and fruits because they, those were not animal sacrifice there. But it's very unlikely that they were vegetarian. If you get the argument that they were vegetarian because of that text, just ask the person, so uh, are you suggesting that these worthy, faithful Hebrew people quit practicing the Passover? And the Passover did not happen at temple, you remember. Jesus had the Passover meal in the upper room with his disciples. The Passover meal happened in homes. Okay, So are you suggesting that they wouldn't get together at Passover? And the Passover meal included lamb. You ate part of the lamb, okay? So it's very doubtful that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were vegetarians. Um, they were they were meat eaters, almost certainly eating eating the lamb still at least on the meal Passover. And Jesus, of course, would have eaten the Passover lamb every year of his life. And he certainly, even after his resurrection, we have direct recorded in Scripture that he ate fish. Uh, they thought he was a ghost. He said, "No, give me some fish." He ate the fish when in his resurrected body. So, um. I'll leave it with you to decide. To me, it's about the principles of health. The, uh, the, the, the real principles here, the principles of health, you put them in the body, what's healthiest for the body. For most people, if you have a, a wide range of plant foods available, that's a healthier choice. There are many places in the world people don't have that. They get, they, they, they get rice and they get chicken. And they can eat rice and chicken or they just eat rice. And then they will end up getting pellagra and other nutritional deficiencies and die. It's not a good choice for them. Um, but the, the principle is the right principle, what's healthiest for the body. And some people have their own genetic reasons. There are certain foods they can't eat, and et cetera, et cetera. And then the other principle is not just health for the body. It is the stewardship of the earth and that we as stewards should not exploit the earth. And uh, so to the degree that, that we can move away from killing animals for our own sustenance, there's a, there's a certain healthy principle in that as well. Okay? But you can't make up a rule about it. It says, uh, please elaborate on the crowd's response to Stephen's radiating face as opposed to Moses' radiating face. Remember with Moses, they, they shrank away and they put a veil over it. Stephen's radiating face was happening at the trial when they were uh, accusing him. Some looked at him and his face was that of an angel, it says in Acts. Um, if you value Ellen White's comment in Acts of the Apostles, she says that um, some veiled their faces when they saw Stephen's face. And uh, some uh, shied away and pulled back. So there was a similar response. The only difference is Moses' face continued to shine. And Stephen's would be very much like Jesus after the Mount of Transfiguration. He stopped shining. Or when they came to arrest him, if you remember, divinity flashed through humanity and they fell down like dead men for a moment. And then it went away. Then I got up and arrested him, taken him, killed him. Okay? So this is just another, so it didn't continue to shine like Moses did. And it had, we don't know, we don't know everybody who saw it. Maybe somebody who saw it went out and went home and confessed and, and prayed. But the group, as a group, were not persuaded. They stoned him a few minutes later, just like when they, those who arrested Jesus were not persuaded by what they saw either, and they still took him and killed him. <clears throat> 
What spiritual lessons, in, if any, would you draw from the law of laws of thermodynamics, first, second, and third laws of thermodynamics? For example, um, C.P. Snow, uh, in summary, wrote that uh, the three laws are, one, you cannot win, two, you cannot break even, and three, you can't get out of the game. And uh, and so, what are those things? Thing? I, I never, I've really never heard this. It was an interesting question. It came in uh, last night, so I um I went online and looked this up, and because I had not heard it before. And um, the the first law, of, and and the, and the guy is a. Uh, Here's my understanding of the application. First law of thermodynamics is energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's conserved, meaning energy just changes forms. Okay, It can change form from physical energy to matter. So nuclear weapon, we take the energy in matter and we turn it back into uh, energy. And, but the energy is the same amount of energy. It just changed forms. Okay, So that's the first law of thermodynamics. Energy is neither created nor destroys. It just changes forms. Uh, his, his, you can't win means you can't hoard energy. You, any energy you receive, you will return back either in work or in heat or in activity of some kind. You don't, the energy received is constantly moving. So you can't, you can't win by hoarding energy. And if you try, you'll end up uh, dying. Okay. And then the energy that was in your body is returned back into other elements of the earth. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy, that things tend toward disorder. If you're not putting energy into the system, they decay over time. So his words were, um, you can't break even, which means that you can't stay static. You can't stay where you are. You're constantly, in this earth, in this world of sin, we're constantly decaying. We're getting older. We're aging. So we can't break even. We're actually slowly getting worse. And so that's that's what that means. And then the third law of thermodynamics is the uh, the, the entropy or increasing disorder as things become more and more disordered um, in a system approaches zero where change stops happening when it reaches absolute zero. Okay, and when, and so he applied that as you can't get out of the game, you can't get out of this process of energy changing forms and things slowly decaying. Until you die. As long as you're alive, you're still in the game. So that's what I think it means. It was an interesting question. Thanks for sending it. Why did Solomon offer all the animals to God when he blessed the temple? First Kings 863. Sounds brutal to me. Did God like this offering? And if he did, why? So Solomon offered the animals because of Solomon's uh, misunderstanding of, of the whole system and, and what he, uh, and what he thought God would want. Uh, it's not because God wanted lots of animals, and you can find that in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where um, God speaking, um, uh, describing, the prophet is describing, um, you know, his relationship and his prayer to the Lord. said, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? And this is the mindset. It was the mindset of an authoritarian God who you can buy off with payments of some kind. And if uh, one lamb would be good, well, he'd be even more happy with 10,000. This is the mindset of Solomon at the time. Will the Lord be pleased with with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Uh, You can give the ultimate sacrifice. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? So the answer to your question, does the Lord want this? Here's what the Lord requires. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
And you can read in other places, sacrificing his offerings I never wanted, never desired. I hate your offerings and your burnt offerings, Isaiah 1. So God was not pleased with all the animals being killed and all the sacrifices. Uh, this was from the misunderstanding of the human mind, the relation with God, how God's law works. God's character was not understood well at this time, and you see this being acted out. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes. As I understand it, this is in direct reference to end times, not referencing history or current abuses uh, to keep you safe. Dr. Jennings, can you expand on how this might fit with the king of north, king of the south? Could, you possibly, could it possibly mean, like with Jerusalem's siege, uh, when the armies retreated, that was an opportunity for the Christians to leave the city? So let's read the, uh, the text. Um, and in First Corinthians, excuse me, First Thessalonians five, uh, one through six, let's read what it says, and, and and I think it becomes pretty self-evident. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the and this is from the NIV. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. This is describing a mindset not a historical activities. This is a mindset. It's saying when, when, when Jesus comes that these people who it's caught to them like a thief, they're going around saying we're entering a new era of peace and safety. We're entering a new era of humans 2.0. We're entering a new era of the great reset. We're entering a new era of globalism. It'll all be good. And they are in denial of reality of what's happening. It's their mindset denies truth, which is light. But we don't deny truth, which is light. So we aren't of this mindset. So it doesn't come to us as a thief in the night. It comes to us as something we're expecting. We're lifting up our heads and rejoicing because Jesus is coming. And this is the message we're pre-prepare. The second coming is happening. But the world scoffs. When is this coming that you've talked about? Everything goes on like it's always gone. That's what Peter tells us. So I think this is describing a mindset, not some particular sign that you can look at and say, um, other than generally seeing the world is going this mindset. Maybe I'm stretching the integrative evidence-based approach since the earth as we know it is young compared to the universe. Does this allow for accommodation of some supposed evolutionary beliefs. Well, I'd like to hear what ones you had in mind, uh, because the Bible itself teaches Adam and Eve were to create beings, procreate beings in their own image. God, and the Bible says that sins pass down three and four generations. Okay? We make changes in ourselves based on our, our choices, and then those changes uh, alter our genetic expression, and those uh, that genetic expression is passed down to our children, great-grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. So there is, if you want to call that evolution, I call it adaptation. We adapt to our environment around us. Um, 
If you want to look at uh, the famous finches of Darwin, where he saw finches that had different types of beaks. Some beaks were better for getting nuts. Some beaks were better for getting worms. Some beaks were better for getting uh, stuff out of the trees. There were different shapes. And he hypothesized uh, a mutation in the DNA sequence that evolved over millions of years that allowed this to them to take these different niches in the various role. Um, but modern science has shown us, no, all the finches have the exact same DNA sequence. What changed uh, was epigenetics, little molecules attaching to the DNA, changing how the genes were being expressed, which happens in single generations. Okay, it's very quick adaptation, just like the Bible teaches. So, yes, adaptation occurs, and negative pressure can cause adaptations that are negative uh, to occur. So if you want to call that evolution, I don't. I call it adaptation. I think evolution actually means speciation, that one species changes to another species. That there is no evidence for at all. That's fiction. Since God can't create character, would this explain why Genesis seemingly presents man as bipartite breath and spirit? Out of the dust of the earth, breathing in the nostrils, the breath of life, the spirit. And Thessalonians describes him later as body, soul, and spirit. That's an interesting observation. Of course, it does say he breathed in his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the King James says soul. Okay, so uh, so it depends on how you then in that section define soul. It's certainly not a developed character, uh, and soul can just simply mean the entire being. That's how that word is used, I think, in the Genesis context, but I wanted to clarify that. But I, I, I'll have to think about this. It's an interesting, interesting observation. Certainly Adam did not have character yet. He had to develop it by his choices. So that's, that's an interesting, I'll think about that. Thanks. Happy Sabbath, my wife believes that Jesus was able to have victory over temptation and sin because he was both human and divine, and we as humans will not be able to become sinless unless we, uh, unless we are changed at his coming. Uh, is it possible to become sinless while on earth, like not acting Christ-like in moments of tiredness? Okay, so I, I think this, I think I know what you mean, but I think there's several assumptions built in here. And the wording of the question, I think, is quite poor. I'll just tell you that. Uh, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean, I mean the way you describe the word sets up the answer uh, that, that it goes towards the negative. So let me, let me try to rephrase this. First point, um, Jesus, and I think the assumption of your husband is flawed. Because Jesus was divine and human, he was able to come, uh, overcome. That suggests the way it's described, and he may not think, believe it this way. Again, very limited information here. But it suggests that, that he overcame by his divine power. He did not. Yes, he was the God-man, fully divine and fully human, but he constantly denied the use of his divine power. I do nothing of myself, only through my Father. So he lived through, um, through faith and trust in his Father, exercising only human abilities, not divine abilities. He had no advantage over us. He had disadvantage to us because he could be tempted in ways we could not be tempted. He could be tempted. Imagine being tormented, tortured, mocked, made fun of, humiliated, stripped naked, spit upon, lashed with whips, and you have the power with a thought to wipe him out. Think that through. See, many humans have been abused and tortured through time, uh, but they never face that temptation. He faced that temptation. And, uh, or you're just hungry. Turn the rocks to bread. When were you ever tempted to turn rocks to bread? I didn't ask if you had a desire when you were hungry. Tempted to actually do it. 
So his divinity did not actually give him an advantage. It gave him a disadvantage. So the first thing I would challenge your husband on is his flawed assumption that because he was divine, he, that was what enabled him to overcome. It wasn't. It was because he was a unique human being in that his mother was Mary, a sinner, so he inherited the capacity to be tempted in every way just like we are. He could be tempted with his own human nature, as we see in Gethsemane, when strong feelings tempted him. But his father was the Holy Spirit, so he has a mind and a heart that does not resonate or like Fear and selfishness, he can be tempted with it, but he doesn't actually like it, okay? So he's not exactly in our position, because we have a sinful mother and father, and he's not an Adam in, in, in position in Eden who was made out of the dust of the earth and made sinless. He has uh, a, a greater challenge than Adam, but he starts in a position that would be analogous to you and me after conversion. Further, Jesus, because he never sinned, had no habits of sin. He had the human emotion that could tempt him, but he didn't have a wired-in habit pattern to sin like you and I can have if we've habituated certain patterns of behavior that we might need to overcome. Um, and so then the question about becoming sinless, what depends on what you mean by sinless? If you mean without a sinful nature or carnal nature, then no, that happens at glorification. If you mean can our character come to the point that we live in faith and trust and we are recognized as being perfect and righteous like Job, well, many people in history have achieved that. Job, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and the righteous at the end of time in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The fear, selfish, me-first drives do not cause me to love my life so much that I will waver from my trust, faith, and duty that the Lord has given me. I would rather die than betray the Lord. Now, if that's what you mean, then yes, we do become that before Christ comes. If you mean that you will never um, misspell a word in a crossword puzzle again, if you mean that you won't trip and fall, if you mean that you might not actually have a, a snappy response, those things are not sin. Those things, for instance, you can snap and go, oh, but you really weren't even fully paying attention yet, and it was kind of a, a, a reaction, but as soon as you are paying attention, you go, oh, I don't want to be that snappy. Oh, please, let me back up and rephrase that. How are you today? <laughs> okay? And see, there's no sin in that. There is human weakness in that. And that's the big difference. Sin is actual rebellion. It's a heart attitude that is self-centered and exploitive of others, not the shortcomings and little behavioral mistakes. But when you have an imperial law model, it doesn't matter the heart attitude. It's only the conduct or the action that matters. And that's the corruption that's infected Christianity. hope that answered the question. I hear some Jewish people saying Jesus did not really die on Friday, but on Wednesday they state that he had, uh, had he died on Friday evening and rose on Sunday morning, that he uh, was not really three days. What are your thoughts on this? Well, um, it, 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 is, it denies the historical record. Just go to the historical record, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's very clear he died on what the Bible writes as preparation day. In Jewish culture, preparation day is always the day before Sabbath. There was really only three days named in the, in the weekly, in the week. It was preparation day, Sabbath, and first day. Okay? And those are the three named days in the week. Okay? So he died on preparation day, he rested in the tomb according to the Sabbath, and he rose on first day. That's direct from scripture. So either you value the scripture or you don't value the scripture. If you value the scripture, then it's three days. And the three days is in Jewish culture. Any portion of a day counts as a day. So he was in the grave on Friday before sunset. He was in all day Saturday and he was in, uh, after sunset on, on, on Sabbath, which makes it part of first day. And then he rose. So he was in for three days. That's how they calculate the time. 
What lessons would you draw from the... I'm not even going to read that question. Oh, I see. Now, no, never mind. What, they're saying, what lessons would I draw from what I just read in the... Um, in the uh, I think it's talking about, the way it's worded, it makes it very difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting here. But about, well, that's what I draw from the uh, Leah and Rachel uh, dialogue. That's what I think they're talking about, what's going on with Rachel. Uh, human weakness, selfishness, fear, insecurity, uh, uh, self-centeredness, trying to make things happen your way, lack of faith in God, not trusting God, um, and so forth. So shouldn't Jacob, uh, did Jacob have any family history? of um, a, a, a woman who couldn't have children uh, offering a surrogate to be a, a, a child bearer for her. Was there any family history Jacob had about that? And, and, was it, and, and did it work out really well in the family? Was there, was there problems there? And, and so maybe Jacob had, a, had an opportunity to learn a lesson. Why do you think Jacob didn't learn that lesson? Why didn't Jacob say, I'm sorry, Rachel? No. Well, because he's human. He's weak. Because he didn't want, because at this time, Jacob is still selfish. Jacob is not fully converted yet. He loves God, but he's not fully converted. He fully doesn't fully convert until what we read about on his return right before Saul, um, right before Esau. That's when he fully converts. That's when he wrestles with the Lord. That's when fear and selfishness is finally replaced with trust, real trust. So, so, so this is why I think he did it. If you were going to take uh, one of the vaccines, which one would you take? Um, the measles, mumps, and rubella. <laughs> Smallpox and polio. Yeah, that, that's, those are the ones I would take. Uh, if Pastor Bill Chamber, is Pastor Bill Chambers alive? No, he actually died some years ago. I don't even know how many years now. No, no, he's, he's passed. Yes, he did write the Sure Word Bible Study, and he uh, let us, be, I don't know if you want to bequeath that to us, but, but it's on our website, so if you would like to download that, it's a PDF on our website, and you can download that. Uh, in Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve were covered by light. They were naked and not ashamed. Did the light really cover their whole body? If so, why did the Bible have to mention that they were not ashamed? Because shame is, the, uh, shame is a consequence of sin. They, they were covered in light, um, and we will be covered in light when we get to heaven. Our faces are going to radiate. In fact, if you value, value Ellen White's writing, she describes it before Christ comes. The righteous at the very end, right before his appearing, as the wicked are coming to destroy, our faces begin to radiate like Stephen's did. And we have, and she described it as, as Moses did on the mountain, uh, because we're so connected to the, the And I believe there's actually, uh, I believe the scripture on this, it's not magic. My personal view, it has to do with harmony that we in our neural network, which is a biological machine that creates electrical energy and quantum processing, come into harmony with the creator who is an infinite energy source through his spirit, and energy transfer flows into us in ways that um, we're not capable of until we have been purified in a way that we are not fully yet. Moses got there. I think clearly Enoch. The fiery chariot, that was not combustion. Elijah and the fiery chariot, that wasn't the same fire that hit the altar and the sacrifice that Elijah set up. That was fire of combustion. The fiery chariot, no, this was 
the fire that the angels have. This is the fire of, of, of Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him. And we will be filled with the Spirit and that fire flows out through us and into the world around us as well. It's going to be an exciting time. And that's the last question. So, Lord, thank you again for the beauty of Jesus. Thank you for the truth you revealed to us. We do pray that you will remove all hindrances in our own hearts and minds, bring us into harmony with you, that we can be conduits of your love, your truth, and radiate your light in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.